Alright, join me if you would again, Romans chapter 8, let's all stand together, we'll read our passage once again. Just a, a short passage this morning, in fact I'm going to back up and read where we ended last week, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14, Romans chapter 8. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Let's pray. Father, in so many ways, I feel like we're ascending a mountain here. There's so much coming in this passage this morning and the passages to follow. But if we can grab hold of will enable us to mount upon wings as eagles to know spiritual victory over this indwelling flesh and the temptations within and without. But Father, how can we see these things but by Thy Spirit? How can we understand if You don't open our eyes? So Lord, we plead with You. Give us understanding. Help us not just to hear what the bare words are saying, but to compare spiritual things with spiritual. Help us, Lord, as we afresh view the Son of God on that cross 2,000 years ago, not just to save us from hell, but to set us free from sin's current power and dominion. I pray You'd help us to be a people so dominated by Your Spirit's influence that we're able to minister living waters to this community. To see sinners rise from the death that they live in. Open our eyes, O oh Lord God. Help these feeble words of mine. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now I'm going to begin by asking for your deliberate attention as I go through this introductory material. I feel like uh, some of the foundational things that I, I really I think will be helpful for us to go through and understand, but we really have to be paying attention. So I'm going to lay a little bit of a ground of uh, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit, as we head into this chapter, and and I hope will help us to uh, tie many things together. I'm fully aware that uh, for many of us it can be a struggle to sort of connect the dots with the various topics we've been dealing with in the last couple of chapters of the book of Romans. And so, uh, Lord willing, this morning I'm going to start to draw that net together and hopefully with the Lord's help we can get a clearer picture of how these things tie together and that they're not really so complicated as they first seem. I want to reiterate that the discussion in Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8, hopefully we all remember something about them, they are not a series of isolated, separate discussions. This isn't the way to deal with sin here, and then the way to deal with the flesh here, and then the Spirit's a whole different topic in Romans 8. This is all part of one progressive, massive, important flow of thought. I honestly believe that our crucifixion with Christ as believers and the subsequent life in the power of the Spirit promised to the Christian are two of the most misunderstood and neglected doctrines in the entire field of Christian theology. I believe our misunderstandings of what Christ did accomplish there, not just to save our soul, and what the Holy Spirit is willing to do now in us, that is responsible for more failure in the Christian life than anything else. And we can be sincere and we can be zealous in a whole lot of other things. But if we don't fight the spiritual battle, God's prescribed way, we can not consistently win the victory. It's simply not going to happen. Now those three chapters, Romans 6 and 7 and the one we're in the middle of, Romans 8 primarily are intended to convince our minds of four monumental truths 
that are vital as we understand the doctrine of Christian sanctification. Here's what they are. Truth number one. Every single Christian still possesses a nature of flesh undiminished in its influence and power. They bring that into the Christian life and they are to be engaged in ceaseless warfare against this old nature until by death or rapture do you lay aside this robe of flesh. It is no help to talk away or deny the battle. It's time to pick up arms and get ready for war. This is not a playground. This is a battleground. And the real enemy most of the time is the man staring at you or the woman staring at you in the mirror in the morning. Truth number two. Every Christian, and I mean every, is indwelt by none less than the Spirit of God Himself and is equipped with all the power needed to be victorious over the flesh. It's not a matter of finding some other solution, but it's a matter of learning to appropriate the power that God has already, past tense, given to you when you first came to Christ. Number three, Christ died all of the death required to set us free from sin's dominion. There's no death left to die. Fourthly, Deliverance from the power of the flesh is wrought on the principle of faith or dependence upon the Spirit rather than any resources of our own. I mentioned before, you are saved entirely by faith. Sanctification, yes, there's our part of effort. But there's a big difference between fighting to grit our teeth and win some battle in the energy of the flesh and fighting to maintain before our minds the truth concerning the death of Christ on our behalf and a deliberate dependence upon the Spirit of God. Those are two entirely different fights. One will lead to death, withering and failure. And one opens the gateway to consistent victory. You notice in verse 4, the righteousness of the law, it's God's intent, might be fulfilled. What's the next word? Not by us. In us. That makes all the difference in the world. And God's intent is that you and I, through supernatural power, would learn to carry out the character of the law in our everyday life, not ten sets of rules on a stone, but to demonstrate God's very righteousness in this present evil world that we live in, but that is only possible through dependence upon the power of another far greater than ourselves. It's fulfilled in us but not by us. As a believer learns to walk in the Spirit or by means of the Spirit, he's going to recognize the negative aspect of the spiritual life. In other words, how not to sin. He's also going to recognize the positive side, how to live out the indwelling Christ and to do that which is good. Remember Romans 6 and Romans 7, two sides really of the same coin. And that deliverance comes twofold. It's through the saving work of Christ on the cross, and it's by deliberate dependence upon the power of the Holy Ghost. Listen, it is only the Holy Ghost that enables you to reckon that a death on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago is efficacious and powerful for you today. We read in Romans 6, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. How is that done? You see, the Holy Ghost takes the Word of God and says, let me give you eyes to see that. When Christ died that day, so did you. When Christ walked out of that tomb that day, so did you. Alright, we get to Romans 8. The spotlight turns on the Holy Spirit. This is where it's going to be hard to let our minds not wander, but please stick with me. I think this is important. In regards to this New Testament age, there are seven ministries that the Holy Spirit is actively involved in. Okay? Two of those are on a world scale. Two of those are being done all around the globe. Those are restraining sin, which He's going to do until the rapture. Right? He who lets will let until He's taken out of the way. That's what's going to unleash the man of sin in this terrible disaster called the Great Tribulation. Now you think the world's bad now? Wait till the Holy Spirit stops restraining sin. Someone says the world couldn't get worse. Oh yes, it can a whole lot worse. You have not seen the devil incarnate reigning on a world throne yet. That's coming. Praise God the believer won't be here for it, and I hope you're glad about that. 
So the Holy Spirit, one of those ministries is restraining sin. The other one is reproving the world. John 16, he'll reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And of course, the world needs that because they don't have an inward witness. God is bearing witness uh, from the outside, pleading with them. All right, so that leaves five ministries of the Holy Ghost. Hopefully everyone's still with me. Five ministries of the Holy Spirit relating to specifically the Christian. All right, now four of those are accomplished the moment you believe in Christ. They're accomplished fully. They can't be increased or diminished, irrespective of how you feel or what you know or don't know. You believe in Christ. There's four things, four ministries of the Holy Ghost that instantaneously happen, and that's why there's no command regarding those. Those are regeneration. Okay, the creation of a new moral and spiritual nature. Uh, that is the, the work of sealing or marking you as an eternal child of God. The Holy Spirit's our down payment, so to speak, the earnest of our inheritance. The other one is indwelling. The Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence immediately as His temple inside every single true child of God. Listen, it's not a matter of getting more of the Holy Ghost. It's a matter of the Holy Ghost having more of you. That's the emphasis all the time in the New Testament. The fourth one is baptism, not water baptism, a baptism in the body of Christ. Okay, those four things are done immediately to the Christian. That leaves one left, which there is a command given. And that is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that one is conditional. The filling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is not conditioned upon asking. It's not conditioned on having special holiness meetings and going out in the forest and fasting and begging God to give you of His Spirit and getting some second work of blessing where lightning strikes you in the head and now you never sin again. That happened towards the end of the 1900s, the Keswick theology and different things. Total misapplication. Now granted, some had an experience that seemed to mimic that, but scripturally that's not accurate. The filling of the Holy Spirit is commanded and is dependent upon a believer's spiritual condition in regards to sin and yieldedness to the will of God. That's always the case. That's one of the reasons, by the way, sin ought to terrify us. It's not just a loss of some reward down the road. Sin arrests the influence of the Spirit of God in your life and makes a walk in the Spirit impossible. It can't happen. The filling of the Spirit oftentimes comes by degrees. I don't think it's right to teach. There's just two classes. You're either filled or you're not. And everybody perpetually is wondering. And every single one of you would stand up and say, I'm not, because we know what we are, right? It's something that we grow into as we mature. But all right, listen to this. Out of that filling, that last remaining ministry, come seven other manifestations of the Spirit of God that are always linked to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Here's what they are. One is He produces Christian character. That's the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians. Secondly, He produces Christian service. Out of His belly shall flow rivers of living water. Tell me, do you produce that? How much living water are you spilling out in Helena today? None. Right? This has to do with our right relationship to God and yieldedness to Him. I am the vine, you the branches. Without me, you can do how much? Nothing. So He produces Christian character. He produces Christian service. He teaches. He teaches the one who actually wants to hear and know. He produces praise and thanksgiving. Right? One of the evidences of spirit filling is singing psalms and hymns to yourself, making melody in your heart to the Lord. But the last three of those, are they're right here in quick succession in Romans 8. Here's what they are. Leading, witnessing to our spirit, making intercession. All of those are linked in with a life that is yielded to the Spirit of God. These are ministries He does as a manifestation of the life that is yielded to Him. I mean, you can kind of put this big old neon sign that says, The yielded may enter. And again, that's by degrees. I understand we're prone to look to self and go, oh man, I'm such a failure. We all are. We all have the same sinful flesh. But it's as we learn not to look inward, but outward and upward. We look backward to Christ on the cross. We look upward to Christ on the throne. We look forward to Christ, new heaven and new earth, sitting upon a throne. And seeing ourselves as, as seated in the heavenlies. 
Now, admittedly, I had lofty ambitions. We were going to try to cover four verses this morning. Then I cut it to two. Then I beat my head against the wall until I cut it to one. So we're going to confine ourselves to the topic of being led of the Spirit this morning. That's what we're going to talk about. Okay, verse 14, I'll read it again. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, it's probably immediately apparent to you that there's a couple of ways this can be taken. One could be a positional statement where the Holy Spirit is the emphasis, and this is just a statement of fact that something's going to happen. In other words, if you are indeed a child of God, you are being led by the Spirit, whether or not you're aware of it at all. Uh, to some degree, that's true. The steps of a good man are indeed ordered by the Lord. I, I dare say there's a lot of ways, if you really belong to Christ, where the Spirit of God is leading you that you are not aware of. Okay, so this could be a, a positional statement, kind of like verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if you are a Christian. You may feel fleshly, but he's saying your standing is not in the flesh ever if you belong, you are in Christ. There's a second way it can be taken. As more of an experiential statement. As more that has to do with the believer's voluntary submission to God's precepts so that this can indeed be, man indeed be manifested in their life. In other words, it's saying that as you're led by the Spirit of God, you manifest that you indeed belong to Him. Maybe you remember the statement in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord tells them to bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you. And He says that ye may be the children of your Father in heaven. Now, he's not teaching the most hideous type of work salvation available. What he's saying is, by showing this precept of loving your enemies, you are demonstrating to the world that you are the offspring of the living God. You are shining your light before men. Now, I'm convinced that's this second interpretation that is definitely in view. He's not giving a statement saying the Holy Spirit's going to lead everybody, although to some degree that's true of every Christian. What he's saying is, He's, he's laying the stress on our responsibility. Here's a few reasons I think that. Number one is the choice of the Greek words chosen. Now this is a big discussion. We're not going to get way into it. But there's different words that can be translated children and sons. The primary are technon and hoyas. Technon's the a general word for children. The hoyas, which is used here, you're led, you're the sons, the hoyas of God. But that many times it emphasizes mature sonship. Now I'm short of being totally dogmatic on that particular shade of meaning, but there is good evidence that what he's emphasizing here is not the difference between somebody who's saved and lost, but he's given the difference between hoyas and technon, mature sons and immature sons. In other words, if you're led of the Spirit, you demonstrate you are a mature son of God instead of goo-goo, gaga, put me in the nursery in your Christian life. A second reason that lends itself to that is just backing up one verse. You remember, he's talking to Christian people in verse 13. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Now, he can't be talking about death and hell. We talked about that last week. But what he is saying, if you yield to the dictates of the flesh, let me tell you what's going to happen. It's going to minister spiritual death to your Christian life. That's why when you choose to sin, you don't want to read the Bible. You don't want to be around other flaming Christians who you know will reprove you. You don't want to be in church. You don't want to listen to godly music because you've chosen to walk in the pathways of sin and you're withering on the vine because... Two can't walk together unless they are agreed. And until you repent, it's not going to change. That verse is saying you walk according to the dictates of the flesh, you're going to wither on the vine. But ye, through the Spirit, you mortify the deeds of the body, you put them to death by yielding to the indwelling Spirit of God, and you're going to live. In other words, you're going to find life abundant. You're going to find what Christ promised. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know why it is? Because he's carrying the majority of it. That's why. And you think, you can only see a picture of a yoke and these two oxen, they got this wood stretched across them. You put the living God on one side of that and this feeble creature made out of the dirt like you and I, who do you think's bearing the weight? See, the lightness doesn't have to do with it, it's not important. It has to do with I'm learning to lead on the power of another. 
So with that in mind, the warning that you live after the flesh, you're going to wither yourself, you're going to die, you're going to, you're going to wear down your convictions. That's why people who sit and stare at that satanic box in their living room in this country for 30 and 40 hours a week wear down their convictions. They don't see the sin they used to see 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're no longer standing for the things they used to stand for. Now they imbibe in Satan's delicacies when a while ago they used to stand against them. It's because the spiritual Novocaine's been injected and they no longer have a taste or sharp discernment. What does it say in Hebrews? The mature people, in God's sight, have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Listen, discernment's like flexing a muscle. It's like working out and lifting weights. You don't exercise it. You atrophy in the spiritual realm. Blindness sets in. Okay, so with that in mind, he makes a statement, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God. He says, you don't want to walk after the dictates of the flesh. You learn to be led by the Spirit you're going to manifest that you are indeed a mature son. Okay, another reason is the, the prominent cross-reference to this, the main cross-reference, and you read Romans 8 on these statements in Romans 7, your mind ought to be automatically cross-referencing to the book of Galatians. In fact, let's just turn there. Galatians chapter 5. Okay, this is the main cross-reference to this passage. Galatians 5, verse 16. Okay, here he says, once again, talking to Christian people, This I say then, how do you avoid fulfilling the lust of the flesh? Walk in the Spirit. In other words, walk by means, depend upon the power of the indwelling Holy Ghost, and what's going to happen? You're not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Then he gives the dichotomy of natures. Verse 17, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh... And these are contrary one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. Does that sound Romans 7-ish to anybody? Oh, wretched man that I am, I find in a law that when I would do evil, or would do good, evil is present with me, right? The good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad I don't want to do, I do. It's exactly what he's expressing here. You have two contrary natures fighting each other like Jacob and Esau in the womb, and there's usually but two choices when these things come up. Verse 18, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. You see, being led of the Spirit there isn't mentioned as a foregone conclusion. It's conditional. In other words, as you learn to walk in the Spirit, you're not under the law. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. It's a very important statement. So what he's emphasizing is walking in the Spirit is one of the greatest manifestations of mature Christian sonship. That's what it is. Now, that brings a question. What exactly is the leading of the Holy Spirit? I've got to admit, a major frustration on a passage like this preaching is I know every sermon is going to fall short of completely explaining what this means. There are things in the Christian life, to many degrees, you can live vicariously through somebody else. Somebody can bring you to the watering hole and say, here, let me help you drink. But there are also things relating to Christian experience where the training wheels have to come off and we experientially have to learn them for ourselves. I feel like I can be on some distant mountain pointing to an oasis miles away and say, there it is, now go drink, but I can't go any further and that's why there's a lot of, not a lot of ink spilled on describing exactly what the leading of the Spirit feels like, for lack of a better word. Let's say that I was born deaf. We become friends, and for some reason or another, you take me to the symphony orchestra playing Handel's Messiah. And here I sit and shrouded in darkness, or, or silence, and I'm watching your face, and I see this look of this rapturous delight as you drink in this music. And I sign over to you, can you explain to me what it's like to hear that? How are you going to do it? 
If only you could give me your hearing for five minutes. That would describe more than a thousand volumes of description. Let's say you take a man who's got an unbelievable relationship with his earthly father. He respects that man. He fears that man in a right way. He loves that man. He'll do anything for his father because he fears and loves him. But you see, it's reciprocal. He trusts that father so implicitly because he knows he'll never command him to do anything to his own hurts. He can talk to him about anything without getting his head blown off. Here comes two young men to that guy. One of these young men has a father that's not even worth the term. Derelict, hateful, neglectful, abusive. Another young man with him has no father at all. And they ask this guy, explain to me what it's like to have that relationship with your earthly father. And once again, what's he going to say? He's going to say, I can give you some guidelines. I can try to point to it, but there's a uniqueness to it. There's an individuality and a wonder to it that I simply can't pass on to you. You would have to experience it yourself. Well, with that same thing in mind, I'm going to try to give at least some guidelines. But I can't take us a whole lot further than that. In Psalm 32, I'm not even going to have us turn there. I'll read it to you. I think Psalm 32, 8 and 9 is one of the most beautiful pictures from the Old Testament that depicts the leading of the Spirit. And I think as a Christian, we can look at this and say, this is God's heart of what He wants to have with me. Here's what it says. Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. God's heart is for us to be so in tune with His mind that it's like He glances somewhere. And out of a heart of love and devotion, we're saying, I'm going. But then He says in the next verse, Be not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near to thee. Friends, listen, as a Christian, if God has to stuff a bit and bridle in your mouth and jerk your head around, He'll do it to a point. But His desire is for us to be so in love with Him, so convinced and trusting of His character, that all He has to do is look. And we're going, that's our disposition. Being led by the living God in the midst of a confused and satanic world system is one of the greatest realities to be found in either testament of the Holy Scripture. It really is. I mean, the benefits that this particular ministry of the Holy Spirit are able to give in the life of the Christian are beyond calculation. You understand God never designed human beings to be able to guide themselves. That was true in the garden. If it wasn't, why was there fellowship with God and why were there guidelines given? At the very beginning. Of course, that fellowship with God is broken. Man dies in the spirit, begins to die physically, and 6,000 plus years of disaster have given proof enough that man can't live by himself. That's why man's incurably religious. At least somewhere in his subconscious he knows, I am an imbecile, at least somewhat, you know, nothing could be more illogical and unnecessary than a Christian person walking by means of their own wisdom. But how often is that the case? Well, first of all, as the term leading implies, you picture in your mind a shepherd leading his sheep. One of the things that implies is it's not a corporate term, but it's unique and it's individual. It is very doubtful, and I would say it's all but certain, God has never led two of His children down the exact same pathway. Look at the Scriptures. Look at the people you see in the Word of God from their backgrounds and experiences and calling. Now look at church history, the well-known Christians you can think of, and how much they differed. 
Look at the writers of the Bible books. Kings, shepherds, former slaves, former Pharisees, intelligentsia, working class, fishermen, prophets, priests. And yet each of them had an individual personality and calling given by God to weave together this glorious tapestry that we refer to as the Bible with all of its 66 glorious pictures God breathed and handed down to us. I think Hebrews 11 is one of the most striking pictures of that. Hebrews 11, you open the doorway to that roll call of the heroes of the faith and the two words, remember what they are that link them together? By faith, by faith, by faith. Beyond that, the most amazing thing about that passage is how different every single case was. Everything from offering a lamb out of the flock on an altar to building a ship that almost the size of a modern ocean liner to house thousands of animals and seven people in your own family to departing the land of your nativity to sojourn in a place you've never been to hiding a baby from Pharaoh's murderous command to taking your only son of promise to the top of a mountain with the full intent of thrusting a knife through his heart. And you see all of those are by faith in God's specific design for each one of those people, but every single one was different. That's why it's so dangerous to use the experiences of others as their guidelines. This happens all the time. Listen, your goal as a Christian should not be to fulfill the individual calling that God has given somebody else, but the individual unique calling that God has given you. And let me tell you something. You will not find an exact blueprint. You won't. You'll not find a biography. You'll not find a practical book on Christian schedule. This is why so many of you have picked up books on homeschooling schedule and you found out none of them really address my specific situation. Do you know why that is? God wants you to work through it individually and be led of the Spirit. And in His love for you, He's letting you fall on your nose so that your confidence is not in what somebody wrote but in the very Spirit of God that you possess within and His love and desire to lead you as an individual. It's one of the dangers in reading biographies. I love reading biographies. But a lot of Christians, particularly young ones, they read about Amy Carmichael or George Mueller, and they want to try to copycat everything in their life. You can't do it. God broke the mold when He made them. And let me tell you something, He broke the mold when He made you. We're made as an individual to be individually led by Him. Secondly, we have to be convinced of our need of leading. Now, this should be basic, but sometimes it's not so basic. A prayerless life. A constant neglect or minimizing of the Scriptures. Reading it with half your brain somebody, somewhere else. Cannot be led of the Spirit. You know, it's interesting. There is no command in the New Testament to be led. It just seems like it's a foregone conclusion that without the leading... Finding the pathways of God for us are an impossibility. Tell me something. Are you convinced there isn't a single safe step to be taken on this earth without the leading of God? Yet so often we live like we're in a safety net somewhere. What would the devil do if he's given leave to you for a day? What would your flesh cause you to rush into if it had full dominion over you? What would this world do to you, knowing what you believe? And yet we can walk so carelessly because we're not convinced of the leading we need. I say again, this is one of the reasons sin should so terrify us. You willingly sin against God, and immediately discernment's going to dry up. Until there's real repentance, until there's a real cleansing, you can not discern in the spiritual realm because you've grieved the Holy Spirit within you. And now He's gone from ministering through you to ministering to you until you're back on board with Him. 
Consider some of the words, just even of the Old Testament saints. How about Jeremiah? Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. David, lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Or better known one, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, expose the inner workings. Why? So that I can be on board with you. See if there be any wicked way in me and do what? Lead me in the way everlasting. Being led of the Spirit requires being convinced of my need of leading. Fourthly, it requires a deliberate dependence on the power of the Spirit. And here's a big one. A willingness to be led. In other words, you and I as Christians must elect God's will to be final before we know what it is. A person who says, oh Lord, reveal me your will so I can decide if I'm going to do it. God isn't going to show you a thing. Do you know why? Because you're accusing God of being unwise, not good, and cruel, and you're still sitting on one side of the throne of your life thinking, you know what, I might have a better idea. The right spirit is, Lord, show me your will because I'm going to do it. And you see, it's to that soul that God reveals His way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And these are all verses we know. We know what it says. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine understanding. And all the ways acknowledge it. Now think about that. Be convinced of God's character to where you can safely trust your heart and life direction into His care. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Be convinced, excuse me for saying so, but that you're a complete knucklehead without God's leading. And no, you don't have a better idea. And the same goes with me. Lean not unto thine own understanding. I know God said, but I see. Forget the but. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. Seek to honor Him first. Don't dwell in the tents of wickedness. Put aside every way that's drawing you out of the ways of God. And you have the promise if you get those three right. He shall direct thy paths. Listen, if God is not leading you, you are failing in one or more of those areas. Period. It has to be that way. You see, it's not so complicated as we sometimes make it seem. You know, the New Testament equivalent of that, I think we could say, is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Before that great section on practical Christian living, which we'll be at at this rate several months from now, but before all the commands within the church that Christians are supposed to do, it begins with consecration. It begins with the laying of myself perpetually upon that altar to be disposed of at His will. And the idea is, when that's right, everything else is going to follow because God is always going to speak loud enough for a willing soul to hear, and the breakdown usually is just there. It's in the will. Galatians 5.18, we already read that. I'm going to read it to you again. I said I'd mention it again. He said, If ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. There's a lot said there. There's a similar thought in 1 Timothy 1.9. Knowing this, the law was not made for a righteous man. One of the things he's saying, here's what it is. The person who is actually led by the Holy Spirit does not need a list of external rules to rein them in. Did you catch that? Being led of the Spirit, you don't need a bunch of external rules to show you guidelines because you're being led by God Himself dwelling within you. How are you going to improve on that? If you find yourself bucking guidelines constantly, there's a problem. It doesn't matter where the guidelines come from. They're an authority figure. End of discussion. 
You remember one of the fruits of our sin nature as outlined in Romans 7? What is it the guidelines do to sin nature? They stir it up and make it sin more. So one of the surest ways to tell that you are walking in the flesh is when a guideline is given by an authority figure and you rise up in fury. You're not led of the Spirit. He that's led of the Spirit really doesn't need all the guidelines. Now I can just hear somebody asking, well, then why do we have standards in the church? I'm glad you asked. But I really hope everybody can hear this answer without getting upset. Let me give you a newsflash from pastoral authority. The bottom line is, if everybody who walked through that door or that one was equally led by the Spirit of God and dominated by Him, we wouldn't need Him. But here's the reality. The New Testament church being a hospital like it is, there's always going to be a contingency coming in and out that are dominated by the flesh. There's always going to be a contingency that has to push the envelope. No matter where you draw the line, they want to step over it. You say no marijuana, they want to use cocaine. It doesn't matter what line you draw. Listen, I wish this wasn't the case, but it is. Can I just dig up a dead horse and beat it for a minute? Let me give you an example. The immodesty that is crowding the American churches and choking the spiritual life out of them. Primarily in those that are taking, getting taken over by the contemporary rock music. The clothes get tighter and they start coming off. That's almost always a fruit of it. But let me ask you an honest question. You take a young lady, or a young man for that matter, they're dominated by the Spirit of God. That means their predominant characteristic is they're concerned for manifesting God's holiness above anything else. Their chief concern is the glory of God above anything else. They have a proper viewpoint on the use of the body and the sanctity of marriage. They understand the theology of the flesh and the danger of making it come up into sinful temptations. Moreover, they also understand the necessity of yielding to a brother's conscience so I don't cause offense. Let me ask you something. Somebody like that, do you need to tell them to go put clothes on? No, you do not. You don't. Because they're led of the Spirit. You see, they understand these principles within what puts the lie to so much of this contemporary music or contemporary direction on a lot of these issues they argue with is those things very plainly are not in view in their mindset. It's all about what I want. It's all about what we feel. It's all about what works. It's all about how I want to worship God. It's all about I have liberty to do what I want. And those are in direct contradiction to the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And if that is your mindset, you are as carnal as the day is long. That's not where the New Testament places the emphasis. So someone led of the Spirit, they really don't need all these external guidelines. Can you imagine, a, you know, I, I was, when we were driving back from Alaska this last time, Jeremiah and I stopped by the Yukon River in Whitehorse, and, and there's this old little rickety bridge going over part of this canyon. I don't remember how old, it's like 92 years old, it's been there a while. And you get in the middle and you know, the whole thing sways. And uh, you get out there in the middle, and I'm looking down and thinking, whoa, Nelly, that's a long way. You know, there's a sign there. What do you think that sign says? Enjoy yourself. No, it says don't jump from the bridge. Now, I actually took a picture of it. And I thought, wow. Now, I suppose I could get all offended and say, well, why are you putting that there? I'm not about to jump. Who do you think I am? You legalist. Well, the authorities, here's what they say. Well, you may not jump off the bridge, but guess what? As sure as I'm standing here, there's always some that will. And so for those that aren't thinking sanely, we put up guidelines because unfortunately in a world full of sin, we have to have them. The policemen outside aren't carrying guns to shoot the law-abiding citizens. The government is not in place to execute the choir boy. It's there because of human sin. Guidelines in the church, sadly, are the same way. But listen, there is a danger. There's always a satanic counterfeit to God's dealings. And we've got to recognize that. This is where as we grow in our Christian experience, we become more schooled at recognizing this. 
or whether it's some sort of fanaticism or emotionalism. And there's all kinds. You ask somebody today, what's the, what's the evidence of being led of the Spirit? Someone's going to say, well, you're, you're rich. You know, you name it and claim it. I mean, you see my, you know, my Bentley out there. Obviously, I'm led of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues, loud emotional musical trances. Some would say, well, the silence. I'm in this occultic prayer practice. I'm centering prayer. I'm, I've entered the silence where I don't know anything. I don't think anything. I don't want to do anything. That is spirituality. It's possible to be very sincere and terribly mistaken. But here's what I want to say on this note. The true leading of the Spirit is primarily going to be threefold. And here's what those three pillars are. Philippians 2.13, a verse most of us know. For it is God that worketh in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So one facet of that, okay, one leg of the stool of divine leading, is going to be this inward confident assurance of the definite wills of, will of God. In other words, God actually sways the judgment to be able to recognize His direction and have a confidence that is indeed the will of God. Now sometimes that takes time to work out. But I'm not talking about just passing fancies of mind. The people are a dime a dozen today that want to tell you, God told me this, God told me that. God told me to jump off the Grand Canyon. God told me to go worship my grandmother's grave. You can find somebody to tell you God told them anything. It's not a passing whim or fancy. It's not every idea that pops into your head is God speaking. That is extremely dangerous. It's interesting. You look at the lives of uh, George Whitfield and George Mueller, two of my favorite Georges in history. George Whitfield went off when he was young in his ministry towards trusting impressions of mind. He thought, well, I'm led of the Spirit, so everything that pops into my head that I feel strongly about must be the will of God. And Jonathan Edwards, not as flamboyant of a speaker, but a towering theological mind, took him aside and warned him and said, you're going the wrong way on that. Well, eventually George Whitfield finally got married. He had a son. Named him John. He stood before a crowd of enthusiastic listeners. And he announced to them, I've named my son John, and God told me he's going to be a preacher of the gospel. And the crowd erupted in applause. A short time later, that child became sick and died. And that marked a turning point for Whitfield to stop trusting every passing fancy that came into his head. But yet you find George Mueller testifying out of a rich experience with God that God worked predominantly by means of a willing mind that was ready to do His will. And he found his judgment swayed. Okay, so one is this quiet assurance and God steering judgment. Another one is the primary agent of convincing is going to be the rightful interpretation of the Word of God. I don't mean a proof text. God gave me a verse. I mean actually being convinced of the mind of God, which is the proper way to treat the Bible when you're making decisions. It's not open up and go, oh, there it is. Oh, that's a dangerous practice, but so many do that. Again, Romans 12, 1 and 2. As your mind is renewed through the Scriptures, what happens? You may prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, the Scriptures cleanse your mind and give you the faculty of judgment that as you grow in Christian grace, you're able to recognize by inward assurance that is the will of God. There's a third one. And that's outward circumstances. Really, I don't even have a, I'm not even going to turn to a text on that one because that's something we see all throughout the Scriptures. So there's the inward assurance... There's the understanding through the Word of God, and there's external circumstances. But here's the deal. That third one, the external circumstances, are the, is the flimsiest of the three, and may or may not be there. There's times God may lead you to a direction, and the circumstances seem spelled against you. I doubt Isaiah, when he's being sawn in half by Manasseh's men, thought of circumstances were pointing towards, boy, I'm sure glad I preached. God moves in your heart to witness to some neighbor. You've been praying for them. You know I'm to speak to them now. The door opens. Boom! And they respond with a verbal equivalent of a 12-gauge shotgun with a 50-round magazine, and they let you have it. Circumstances didn't point to much. We can look at so many missionary lives. When Hudson Taylor arrived in China, boy, did things seem stacked against him. 
But he had such assurance in the Lord's direction that it wasn't allowed to override the direction that God had led him. Let me just give a few more external guidelines and we'll be done. Number one, somebody led by the Spirit is going to be preoccupied with the glory of God. The main question occupying their mind in any decision is what does it make God look like? The question is not why is it wrong. The question is not who's doing it. The question is not I'm going to go to a church and find one that likes to tell me what I'm doing is right. The question is how does this make God look? Their mind is continually filled with the Word of God and they're interested in truth. Here's another one. Somebody led of the Spirit is approachable. Speaking of satanic counterfeits, and uh, we talked about James 3 just a little bit in the last hour. Remember what James says? James gives a satanic counterfeit. The wisdom that is uh, not from above. You remember that? He says, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish, demonic. In other words, this is a satanic counterfeit. But he says, here's the wisdom that's from above. It's first pure peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. In other words, somebody led of the Spirit is somebody that is approachable. You can talk to them, and they're not going to knock your head off for it. And if your reaction when somebody questions your direction is to get angry, you prove you're not led of the Spirit. Listen, that goes with me too. Let's say I get up and I announce the direction our church is going. I think we should go this way. Some of you come privately and you question me. And I respond with anger. That's proof positive. I am dead wrong in my spirit. That wisdom from above is manifested in any one of us. Or the wisdom that's from uh, below. Here's another one. Somebody being led of the Spirit is going to be in obedience to God, God's channels of authority. And there's a lot of them. A husband's authority. A parent's authority, or honoring parents. Governmental authority. The authority of the local church. There's one that's under attack today, isn't it? I mean, on one hand, you've got the, the pompous showboat peacocks that strut around, and they want to make sure everybody knows they're in charge. They're the man of God. They always got to be right. That's not just in so-called circles of fundamentalism. That's true in the emerging church. Many of them are stepping down because of allegations of spiritual abuse, threats of violence towards the other leadership in the church. But, you know, just as damaging to that is this growing antagonism towards the rightful authority that God has given to the New Testament church. It is God's will for every Christian to be under the accountability and authority of a local New Testament assembly. Now, there's times of transition. There's times that's difficult. I get that. But our goal should be to be aiming at that. And both of those extremes are so utterly damaging. I'm seeing an increasing number of the other today. Blogs in different places. They're so antagonistic towards any sort of authority in the New Testament church. Friends, listen. Not only is such a person ignorant of what their own Bible teaches, but they're placing themselves in terrible spiritual danger because they're ignoring some of the plain precepts of God. Someone led of the Spirit is going to be underneath God's various channels of authority, and there's several of them. That's another manifestation someone's not led of the Spirit. Here's another one. Someone led of the Spirit is going to be sensitive to the consciences of others. You can reference 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, where Paul deals with that issue. What do I do with meat offered to idols? Tremendous contemporary example of some applications for today. I'm not going to go through it all. But what he comes to is, in matters where I'm able, my brother's conscience trumps my liberty and my love for him and my freedom not to sin. That is Christian liberty. That's the real definition of it. Others' consciences are going to be important to me if I'm led of the Spirit. Here's another one. This is a big one. Somebody who's led of the Spirit is going to be willing to wait or be redirected as God sees fit. Let's say you're determined to go a certain way. I know it's the will of God. God steps in and unmistakably blocks it. What's your reaction? Is it your own understanding? 
or is it God's understanding? Let me be honest with you about something. I was sitting on my porch last night thinking about that statement. I didn't come to Helena because I like the area. That's a byproduct. I do like the area. But I was sitting there thinking, Lord, it's praying for this city. I was saying, Lord, I love this church family. I like our house. I like the location. I could see staying here for a lot of years. But I had to ask myself, but are you willing? If the Spirit of God plucks up and wants to move the tabernacle, that your eyes are on Him and not what you like. You see, our tendency is to make an idol about one of God's checkpoints. God says, go here. You know, one of the amazing things about the word leading, leading is moving. Some years ago, I was real big with young men. What's your five-year plan? I remember some time ago, I'm talking to some college men at a wedding, and well-educated, going into ministry. Brother, what's your five-year plan? They'd say, let me tell you mine. I'm going to finish school here. I'm going to be there three years. The church is going to be so big. And I'm going to be on to do this. And I'm thinking, did you ask God about that? What's your five-year plan? Be in the will of God now, and in five years, guess where you're going to be? But don't make an idol about one specific facet of His leading. What's God's will for my life? God's will for your life is to submit to Him now. And that may take on a lot of facets as you walk through this existence. Let me just give you a couple of examples and we'll be done. In the life of this particular author, we've already talked about one in Romans 1. Remember? He tells him in Romans 1, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let, prevented, hitherto. He says, I tried to come see you guys over and over and over again, but let me tell you what happened. God stopped me. And because God stopped him, you and I now have the epistle to the Romans we're preaching through because he wrote out in a letter what he would have said in person. Could he have known what God was going to do with that letter? Not on your life. Let me give you another. We'll turn to one more passage. This is amazing. Turn to Acts 16. Acts 16. Just an incredible example of this principle of being led by the Spirit and giving God the right to redirect as he wills. Okay? Here we are. We're heading out on Paul's second missionary journey. He's parted with Barnabas, sadly. He comes back through Lystra and Derby, finds a young disciple by the name of Timothy, well reported of by the brother. Now he has another co-laborer to disciple and bring along with him. The churches are increasing in number daily. Things are going well. And Paul's ready to charge on to the next mission field. Let's go into Asia. In verse 6, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost, to preach the word in Asia. They were come to Mysia. They essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. It's interesting what it tells us. This wasn't some external sign from heaven. This wasn't even God wrecking their ship, although that happened some. This was apparently the internal assurance of the Holy Ghost telling them, I know that seems open, and I know you want to go there, but you're not. I've got something better. And by the way, this is one of the many places we could go. Listen, the Great Commission to go into all the world does not do away with the need to be led of the Spirit. It's not God's will for you to talk to every single person about everything in this community. Do you understand that? We're to preach the Gospel, yes, but that doesn't do away with the leading of the Holy Ghost. There are people you may talk to that you will damage them spiritually if you go ahead of God's guidance. You see, out of our bellies should flow rivers of living water as we are in subjection to the Spirit of God for Him to say, go speak and keep your mouth shut. And we've got to be able to recognize the difference. So the Lord tells him, well, don't go there and don't go there. And of course, can you think of the excuses Paul could have come up with? Well, Lord, we've had such success everywhere we've gone. Did not Jesus close His earthly ministry by saying, go into all the world? I mean, do you not love the people in Asia? Why can't we go there? I'm going anyways. 
It's just the devil bothering me. They didn't go. Here comes the call to Macedonia. Lord, just go there. But look what happens in Macedonia. Verse 13. Here he comes to Philippi, chief city. Verse 13. On the Sabbath we went down out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Now in cities where they didn't have a synagogue, they would go meet on the Sabbath day by a river or something. So Paul goes to talk to these, these Jewish ladies that are gathered, and what does he find? And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira. Now if you're familiar with Bible geography, you'll recognize Thyatira as being smack dab in the middle of Asia. The Lord says, you don't go to Asia. I'm sending you to Philippi. And the first convert you're going to find in Philippi is a lady from Asia. And that is how that church is getting planted. Thyatira, Paul never went to. And you read about that church in Revelation 2 and 3. And as far as we know, it was Lydia, the traveling seller of purple, who wasn't in Asia, but 400 miles away in Philippi, where she was reached and went back and planted that church. Does God have the right to redirect this like He wants? You look at a map of Paul's second missionary journey. It's like he makes almost a circle around Asia. He goes you know, east to west, right over the top of it, around into Macedonia, and then he comes back west to east and goes like this under it. But he didn't go through it until the next journey when the Lord said to go, and he went and those churches were planted there. See, God's heart was after those people, but it wasn't just the right person. It had to be the right time in the right way. If they would have ignored God's calling back then, they would have fruitlessly labored in the wrong field. And who knows what would have happened to Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, or Corinth. When the Lord said, I want you there. And not there. What about Bithynia? What happened to them? Well, Paul never went there. But that's not the last we hear about him. Peter writes in his first epistle, you remember who it's addressed to? To the strange strangers scattered throughout Asia, Cappadocia, and where? Bithynia. Somehow the gospel got there. I don't know how. And Paul was right in his heart to want it there. But the Lord said, not by your mouth and not by your hands. You go where I tell you. The leading of the Spirit is critical in any ministry we do. It's critical in family direction. It's critical in the standards we set. It's critical in why we do what we do. The idea of preaching the gospel in this community is not charge out and do what I think. You know why I don't do that? I'm convinced of one thing. I can do nothing. But here's what I am convinced of. We go at the Lord's leading. When He says, where He says, how He says, and to who He says, guess what follows? Rivers of living water. Supernatural influence. Because it's not about what I think or I want to do, it's about what God has determined I'm going to do and how I'm going to think. So ask yourself this question. Most of you would say your Christian life is a fight right now. And it's going to be. What is the real sphere of battle? Are you clenching a treat, your teeth and, and fighting to keep your head above water to stop doing certain things and I'm not going to do that, 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 that. I'm not. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to spend money stupidly. I'm not going to do whatever else it is. I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. Or is the fight I'm going to look on the crucified Christ. I'm going to remember the Spirit that dwells within. And by the grace of God, I'm going to learn to walk in the Spirit. I may fall on my face, but I'm going to get back up. And I'm going to confess sin. And I'm going to take hold of those promises. And I'm going to believe God is within me as a mighty conquering power, just like He says. One is going to lead to death. Withering. One is going to lead to more fullness of life. Some of these guidelines we talked about, 
Young or old, do you find yourself on the wrong side of some of these principles? You better check what you're doing. There's no safe step in this world apart from the leading of God. There's no wrong step we take that doesn't make us lose time that we could have been going the right way. No time for delay. No wisdom of our own. But a God who's pledged to give us all of these things if we'll just trust Him and yield ourselves to Him. I hope that's at least given a fair picture. I wish I could say more. But this is something we've all got to learn by experience, by degrees, and I hope that we are all on this journey. Don't be discouraged about your failure this week. God knew about it when He saved your soul. There's not a skeleton in your closet the devil's going to dig up and say, well, here, look at this, and God's going to go, ah, I forgot about that. That's where we're heading at the end of Romans 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. He's looking at the devil saying, what are you going to dig up on me? You don't even know all that I've done because I've thought things that you can't read my thoughts and God knows them already. So don't try to accuse me. It's Christ that died has risen again. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to understand these glorious truths. Father, I wish I could say so much more. I wish I could understand more, but I know even my understanding is going to come by degrees. I pray you'd help us to grow the rest of this year. Help us, Lord, to be conscious of which battle we're actually fighting. Help us, Lord, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and His crucifixion. Help us by the power of the Spirit to depend upon what You've said about us as being true. Help us, Lord, to stop looking within for power to do because You have told us it's not there. The greater is He that is in us and he that is in the world. Help us to manifest to each other and to this culture that we are indeed mature sons of God. I thank you, Lord, that you want to lead us and you're willing to. In Jesus' name, amen.